This is Changeling the Podcast. Episode 3 of Changeling, the podcast. I'm your host, Joshua, and with us is also Puka. Hello, Puka. Greetings. So yeah, what are we doing this episode, Puka? I'm here to take names and talk Changelings, but you you do what you want. I mean... Are we all out of names? I, you know, sometimes you, you, set, you set out to take names, and you get through the first few hundred, and then you realize there's still so many names to take. And you just get tired and you make yourself a cup of tea and you sit down and then your mind moves on to other things and you find yourself sitting with the changeling book in your hands, ready to talk about changeling instead. That's, that's just, that's how my evenings go sometimes. Let's give a, a slight uh, content warning for this book. It may induce bedlam. We are talking mm. about the change, the first edition core book for changeling the dreaming, where it da, 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 da. all started after it had the pre-start from our previous episode. So I suppose we're we're just kind of going through and doing a deep dive, a thorough read, and sharing our findings, yeah? Yeah, we're going to go in order of the book, because uh, I think we both read the book in order and wrote down our notes in order, so that works. Core book is a bit different from most other core books. I know you had some ideas about to bring that, just of the structure and organization of it. Yeah. Well, and even more than the structure, what strikes me most is the aesthetic of it, because, you know, I, I try to project back to the before times and being a gamer in the mid 90s. Um, and not that I played World of Darkness right when Changeling came out, but I can imagine, you know, after Vampire and Werewolf and Mage and Wraith, you have these very sort of heavy designs and uh, lots of gloom and doom in some cases. And then you get to Changeling and it is just full color all the way through not work margins that are like bright and shiny and then in the preface in in the tradition of opening with sort of an in-universe character giving the backstory of the splat we have this treatise by true thomas and it's done in this style where it's a series of photographs which i was thinking about this might be the first time we actually had like full two-page photographs in any world of darkness book so there's that immediate change i can't think of any world of darkness book that quite looks like this it's yeah uh, i mean v5 there's a little bit now because they have more photo stuff in there but mm -hmm. yeah it's not technically the beginning that's true that's yeah. true it's a little i mean it's got the like blurb title page table of contents and then a thing about how no one should ever grow up and then the photos and then the photos which is also, I can't think of any World of Darkness book that has this little preface like that, that, you know, gets philosophical about the nature of growing up and avoiding mm -hmm. it. So Yeah, it's, it's not directly about the game. It's about, yeah, it's to the reader, not the, not the, yeah. Yeah, this, this photo spread is so incredibly 90s. Yes. <laughs> and fitting so much of my life in the 90s. And it's all like, object so for anyone who hasn't seen it each each photo spread has like page after page of the actual text that you're meant to be reading but then it's all on this table surrounded by objects and we have among other things 
uh, a stack of is it three and a half inch floppy disks? It's yes. been so long since I've actually had to use one that I can't remember. Mm-hmm. We have a deck of magic cards. We have art from the book. Yeah. Like actual piece art pieces that are then later used in the book, but it's like the original paper for it. We have a business card for the cover artist, Henry Higginbottom. So that's cool. Yes. Oh, and a little... Ah. Well, I don't know who did these photos, but we have on one of the pages, we have that business card for the artist. And then in a slight uh, mage connection, perhaps a little, um, I guess, place card for Kathy Ryan. So some names from the White Wolf stable appearing. Yeah, we got uh, cookies that are uh, Alice in Wonderland reference. And my my favorite thing is the, uh, I'm always bad at pronouncing his last name, Alexander Siddig. Yeah, yes. Dr. Bashir from Deep Space Nine. Autographed. Just sort of little autograph photo of him in the corner. Autographed pinup. Next to some donuts. You know what? He can he can live on my wall or desk anytime. Yes. Uh Midsummer's Night's Dream. Bowl of ice cream with some cigarettes stubbed out in it. Headless troll doll. No, it's got a head. It's decapitated, but the head's right next to it, isn't it? An unlucky troll doll. Yeah. There's also, actually, I just noticed this on that same page, there's a coffee cup with what looks like a claw coming out of it. Oh my goodness, I never noticed that. That is really cool. Oh, and the map of Concordia, the sort of North American uh, changeling kingdom. There appears to be a palantir on the last page. A what? I don't recognize The seeing stones from Lord of the Rings. I don't know if that's what it's intended to ah, be, okay. but, you know. Mm. They haven't decoded the... There's like writing tidbits. This is... I wonder if there's like deep lore significance to the... Oh, it's mentioning... Yeah, there's some writing here that, that is in... Yeah, there's something, there's like an invitation to Duke Aeon's ball somewhere. Like, it's, you can just kind of go Mm -hmm. through this again and again and keep finding little tidbits. Um, But I do like how it is presenting so much of the the world. It's kind of like in the, I want to say the second edition Vampire Core book, there's a letter from uh, Vlad Tepe's Dracula to Mina Harker explaining who the kindred are, what they do, what they're like. And that's what this is most similar to, mm. I suppose. That, that was a similar publishing date, wasn't it? Uh, around the, I mean, yeah, 90, 90 early 90s. It all blends together yeah. at some point. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that kind of, there's this genre of literature called the mirrors for princes. And it's like, you know, like Machiavelli's The Prince. It's this sort of instructional literature for monarchs. And that's what this strikes me as, because it's written to High King David explaining glamour explaining banality giving the history mm-hmm. of the accordance or all of these little here's the things you need to know to rule properly sort of stuff but yeah it's a very fascinating this book's very big on setting mood theme and tone and not having minimal page count to get across the rules in as quick as possible and it definitely sets this this vibe up of like i don't know if you have the sca the society of creative anachronism Yes, we do. That's it. Reminds me of like SCA chapter president kind of feel. That's the, the best way I can think of to describe it. Just like very eclectic and based in folk music and fantasy literature and music concerts, talking mm-hmm. about nobility and all that. Anyway, we can move on. So then it's organized. So that's a little preview, the little essay about not growing up, and then all those spreads, and then a bit of sort of stained glass looking art 
And then we get yeah. into book one, Childling. So the chapters are organized into three books. Starting out with some nice art of a she warrior. It's the, I think it's the same one on Nobles the Shining Host. I've definitely seen that picture somewhere else. So this is this is Lee, who is the sort of signature she character from the Immortalized Chronicle, which we can we can talk about later on. But this is an example of the Deterlizzi art that I'm so very fond of. Yeah, then we go chapter one, introduction. This introduction actually I thought did a pretty good job of I've read a lot of these in a lot of White Wolf and other role playing games. I thought it does a reasonable job of explaining what a role playing game is mm-hmm. and uh, sort of how to do things. Yeah. yeah, they talk about Mind's Eye Theater and Changeling LARPs in here. Which must have been a recent... Mind's Eye Theater must have been fairly recently created at that point, yeah? From my understanding, when Vampire the Masquerade first came out, it did not take long to pe- for people to start LARPing it. Mm-hmm. And then kind of caught they caught up on making books on how to do this thing. <laughs> but it's interesting to talk about l- people having LARPed Changeling before there was a Changeling. Again, there's that SCA connection. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it almost strikes me as um, it's written as though it, it might be the reader's first role-playing game. Yes. And I almost had the sense as I read it, you know, if if you were a 12-year-old who wanted to run a World of Darkness game, this is the book for you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I mean, they do do that. If you read through, like, any of the, certainly 90s, but I think, like, in general, World of Darkness books do that. They're, they're always starting out assuming you haven't played a role-playing game before maybe it's just the vibe that's making me think this is an especially friendly one mm-hmm. for oh i think it would be and i think they did a very good job of like breaking down how to run mm-hmm. it and i think they gave very good advice better than i typically see like they i think later it's more when they get into more of the detailed advice but yeah this is just sort of giving the background of what a role-playing game is though they do they do say they do claim that when you get a bit of experience you can do character creation in half an hour and i'm not so sure about that part well, you can organize dots in half an hour. That's certainly doable. That's true. I want to call out a quote on page 40, if I may. It's under the header Changeling Kind, and it says, You lead a double life, alternating between reality and fantasy. Caught in the middle ground between dream and wakefulness, you are neither wholly fae nor wholly mortal, but burdened with the cares of both. Finding a happy medium between the wild and insane world of the fae and the deadening banal world of humanity is essential if you are to remain whole. And I find that... Um, I think that's the point. You know, if I had to say mm-hmm. the point with a capital th and a capital p, that would be it for the entire game. And I think that it often gets lost in games because people want to lean very heavily into the face side or the epic side or whatever. And just that little reminder of like, uh, you are still also human. You know, yes. that's important. Yep. And we can sort of address how well each, when we do the three editions, how well each work strikes that balance. Yeah. Good. We also get a, a lovely list of lexicon at the end, which is de rigueur for World of Darkness books. And I love all these words that you just, you never see again. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. It, I've noticed there's less capitalized in here than I've seen in later Changeling and other White Wolf books. That may be. And yeah, so I was, I was marking, I noticed some stuff from the lexicon that just struck out for me from later Changeling. It talked about how like Galane can just be Kithane that like a type of changeling like from the normal type of changeling that's not they're just oh that one's a bit weird yeah like we don't really know them as well yeah and there's a something kind of like in uh, Mage the Ascension Orphans they talk about mongrels it's another concept I don't remember ever seeing in changeling they also talk about how you can be noble and commoner at the same time 
and apparently chrysalis is only used by stodgy old she as a term without providing any other term for that again, which is the point where you become a changeling or where you're awakened to who you are as a changeling what else would you call it yes but it's just it's under the old form yeah which is yeah, the yeah. terms used by debility especially she seldom used by younger exiles well what are, but everyone just went through their so somebody went through their chrysalis doesn't have a word for what they just did in this list but, <laughs> but i'm gonna start start using uh some of these like saying calofe and fujir and all these other ones interestingly i don't know if you noticed but um fomorian and tuas jadanan do not appear i don't think anywhere in the book nope yeah, well I, I don't remember yeah i don't remember seeing either and they have yeah they don't have fomorian it was very yeah. distinct on that actually so we're we are pre that part of the meta plot in this book yeah, there's a, there's a number of things that we think of as, I think the two of us probably think of as very core to Changeling that aren't in here. Yeah. So the next is the setting chapter. The standard World of Darkness ethos exploration. Mm-hmm. I thought this did a pretty good job as well. Can I say, I think the uh, the frontispiece for this chapter, which is the Deterlizzi art for the Puka, is probably my favorite art in the entire book. Ah. So we see the process, the process of shape changing into a rabbit. With the jester's cap, because why not? Yeah, I found some interesting stuff. Uh, do you want to dive in right here, or do you want to? Let's dive. Let's do it. Yes. So, like one thing I found is it talks about Tiernanog as so as it describes being an empire post Sundering. So that's so yeah, changeling history. We should probably get a little bit into that. Mm-hmm. There's sort of the prehistory where the dreaming, which is sort of the realm of the Fae and the mortal world, were all just sort of intermixed and indistinguishable for the most part. There's the Sundering, where the two had sort of become separate worlds, but the Fae are still wandering around as Fae in this mortal world. And then there's the Shattering, where which is described as not happening everywhere all at once, same as the Sundering, not really happening all at once, everywhere all at once in here. The Shattering, where the it sort of became impossible to continue on as a typical Fae, and some of the a lot of the she and whatnot went back to the homeland in, in arcadia and a lot of the most of the other changelings were kind of stuck behind here and fae became sorry fae got stuck behind here and became changelings but it talks about here like how the shattering was late coming to north america and there was an empire called tier nanog that was by the Amer- the fae of the americas and it's like is this the nunehi which is the sort of indigenous america or at least north american fae i don't know it seemed like it was but then didn't explicitly say that i think that readers are at an advantage if they have any kind of background in particularly irish folklore so tirnanog mm-hmm. for example is the land of eternal youth in irish myth and if if i recall my distant past readings correctly it is kind of that oh it's somewhere over the sea to the west and so that mm-hmm. you know because that's a common trope in like european mythology i wonder if they just kind of took that and ran with that in later books we do get some much more problematic stuff that we'll have to talk about down the line in terms of pre-age of discovery transoceanic contact and the fae but that's a can of worms for another day the implication here is that you know you had fae all around the world yeah but they call them kithane and they were just everywhere in the world and it's just the ones who happened to be in tiernanog when the sundering sort of started spreading they were insulated from it for a long time there as opposed to like i don't know fleeing it and going there which is an idea that does pop up in later books as well i think i don't know if there's other 
specifically history stuff you want to get into. I have, I have a few other things, but that's more like around the resurgence. Well, I had, yeah, I, I do have a resurgence comment to make. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, between the shattering and the resurgence, we have a bit about the interregnum, which is when the commoners were essentially ruling themselves without contact with the dreaming. Certainly without contact with Arcadia, and for the most part without contact for the dreaming, since most of the trods had closed up. And then they reopened. And the reason for that is a, in the history of World of Darkness, a convoluted one having to do with the moon. Right, because... We mentioned that in the previous episode about how the other things referred to Arcadia being, some other sources referred to Arcadia being on the moon. So when Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong and I forget the guy who was left up in the capsule. I know, everyone forgets him. <laughs> but on, those are the only two who actually stepped on the moon anyway. And there's yeah. people who flew around it beforehand. That and everyone viewing it or something about that event reopened all the glamour. and the She came rushing back. Although... It, if you look at David, so there's a High King David in the setting for Concordia, like base, well, in this book, it says Mexico, United States, and Canada is Concordia. But it talks about David's basically implying that he was a, an active changeling, like as a she, before the resurgence. I'm just, I'm looking at that piece trying to parse that. Yeah, page 54. <laughs> Because if you yeah. look at the timeline, okay, born in upstate New York in the early 60s, mm. he was, and first of all, in in this book, the she are not possessing human bodies. They're, they're actually, they're the changelings that replaced humans. Right. And it says he was born in the early 60s and he was sane very young. I suppose he could have been sane at the moment of the resurgence. <laughs> yeah, or like right around it, but. That being said, so one of the, one of the features of the resurgence that sort of helps explain and i believe they go into this down the line that sort of helps explain the differing ages of the she in the intervening years is the notion that time gets wonky on the road from arcadia so a she could leave arcadia and take a month to get to the autumn world or it might take 20 years so that's why there's she still awakening so i guess it's not outside the realm of possibility that david woke up a little early somehow which would be an interesting yeah he got there first yeah yeah oh another thing that i did did find just from like a setting thing is they talk about there are 13 noble houses in this book yes they do not name them all but that is something that kept they kept up and i think c20 did add a 14th house it did yeah yeah but up until that point yeah there was 13 houses so and that's a thing they kept they didn't really expand them until quite late in the line so like name them even well, and then the fact that it says the exile of five of the 13 noble houses implies only those five are on earth. And yet we get the unseely ones mm-hmm. pretty soon thereafter. And then the lost ones much later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They also, in this sort of section, talk about Seely and Seely generally in balance and not really. And it's like not that huge conflict. Which I, I like. <laughs> yeah. It's just interesting. Also in the same book, they, uh, it doesn't do that anymore. Yeah. And we do get a lot of the same information that's in the introduction, just kind of not in character voice. Yep. Uh, it says that Concordia is full of Fae from all over the world. So that's nice. And also the Ashit here is something of the dreaming. It's not a thing created by Han King David for Concordia, which I think later is retconned. But I'll have to look into that. Yeah. But I like that. I also, on on the facing page, so we have a list of types of freeholds, which, you know, we get in other editions. 
But um, the concept of the Thorpe, which is the fairy town, it made me think a bit about changeling demographics. And I know demographics are sort of a contentious topic in the community, but the this book is fairly quiet on the subject of how many changelings there are, except it seems to imply that there are a lot. Yes. I mean, they're having pitched battles during the Accordance War. There were enough of them to have entire towns. So I think it's reasonable to say they're probably the most common of the main splats. It's just that with their fairly quick active lifespan and turnover rate, Mm-hmm. you know, it may kind of obscure how many there are at any given time. Well, that, yeah, that's the interesting thing with changelings. You, you, Werewolves do awaken, and mages, you can argue about that. Changelings are not technically human for the entire time they're changelings, right? A lot of them are only active for a few years at most. And another, the, what they do mention in demographics here is about dreamers, not in this section, but in a much later section, but I think it's relevant to this is that the roughly one in a thousand is a dreamer that you could get glamour from. So I don't know how to translate that into how much, <laughs> how many dreamers per Kithane is there to be sustainable, but... Someone's going to have to do the math on that. Yeah. Uh... Anyway, we get about 12 pages on feudalism, which is mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> exhausting, but I suppose it's good for people who aren't nerds about um, medieval government. Well, I mean, it's also good for people who are nerds about medieval government because well, yes, they would not true. just assume it's real feudalism. Yeah, it's interesting that, um, I mean, they really lean hard into the, the the sort of courtly dynamic. It's something I have to get on my soapbox for just a, a minute here. The whole focus of the she in Changeling is something that's always kind of bugged me, not just from a meta plot point of view, but also from just the game experience point of view and it actually i think bugs me more in second edition because in first edition Mm -hmm. at least you have these sort of other subplots wound through you have like dr stark and his dauntane you have uh the immortal eyes oath circle all of this stuff and by the time you get to second edition it's just all high king david's disappearance all the time and that sort of forces you into this courtly politics kind of game which i you know, I like courtly politics, but not just courtly politics. But I think this book also does a lot of things of presenting the she as like the the presenting the anti she commoners as the good guys. That's true. Like it does have more of the I don't know, goth punk aesthetic mm-hmm. from Vampire. Like you're mostly playing, you know, the commoners who are being oppressed by the she. Although you can get into the other politics, gay. Yeah, and playing a commoner, I think, is out of fashion these days <laughs> well I, I i had the larp background as well so that uh, in those you would get like i don't know if you had 30 players you'd get like five she and they'd go and do their politicking and then it would spill over and cause problems like five player character yeah. she and then like npc powerful she right and then like they do their politicking and then it would cause problems for the most of the other players so that's which i think kind of works but and the she are exceptionally fragile in this edition which when we get to talking about the kiths yes they are actually i mean there is a list here uh in in the setting chapter where we can very briefly just kind of go through them i suppose so first we start with the boggin uh boggins are quiet practical homebodies basically hobbits i mean let's let's call them what they are Mm -hmm. and they accomplish ordinary tasks at incredible speeds yeah they're hobbits plus the shoemaker elves yeah 
You have the Ishu, which are sharp-witted and crafty, renowned travelers and storytellers, plagued with unquenchable wanderlust. Uh, they're always at the right place at the right time. They say they originated in Africa. They've since traveled the globe. Then we've got the Knockers, who are grotesque and dour, but also renowned smiths and craft persons. They uh, fix things and relate to machines better than people. They're also well-known for cursing a lot. Uh, Puka are scoundrels of the worst sort. Puka are clever and gregarious talkers. They're famous for never telling the complete truth. They also all have an animal association. doesn't mention it there. It seems a bit important. All of that is slander and calumny, and I take great offense. Um, anyway, then we've got the red caps. Uh, crude, rude louts with a taste for blood, disliked by most. They have voracious appetites and can pretty much literally eat anything. We have satyrs that are lusty, hedonistic party animals, but paradoxically sought after for their wisdom. Their music can be quite infectious and been known to have powerful effects on its listeners. They're also all goat-like, with like horns and goat legs and stuff. Yeah. Then the she are the nobles, uh, very tall, very beautiful. They're natural-born leaders and know it. So the Tolkien elves with sticks up their orifices. Mm-hmm. They have the Slua, which are the whispers of secrets, the disturbing beings that dwell in the forgotten places of the world. They never speak above a whisper, and so you have to listen carefully. The creepy ones. Yes. And lastly, the trolls, the huge, amazingly strong changelings known for their honor and stubbornness. Almost nothing can make a troll change its mind once it has been made up. And there's bits in the sort of in-game lore about how when the Shi were gone, the trolls sort of stepped into the role of being not rulers, but nobles. They were the examples of being yeah. chivalrous and honor-bound. I think it was kind of a combo of trolls and a, a troll would find a bargain, and right. <laughs> the bargain would organize everything and the troll would stand there and threaten to hit people who didn't listen to the bargain. Thinks what it came down to. The knight and his page, or seneschal, perhaps. Mm -hmm. What else? What else in this chapter? It is actually a very nice densely written it's dense without being too much it it treats mm -hmm. almost everything you need briefly and succinctly and that's great one thing that i can't recall this actually popping up anywhere else but we have this concept of the patronage and the clicks i don't know do you recall this from anywhere else in the game because i don't <laughs> i don't recall this from this chapter <laughs> there you go the mists have clouded this page yes but so we have uh, this notion of the cliques, which are groups of changelings that, you know, get together and patronize arts or creativity of specific types. So you have the mm -hmm. Epicureans who idolize the art of preparing and enjoying food, the Terpsichoreans who dedicate themselves to dance, the groupies who appreciate rock and roll, the Zoetrope Society who look at films, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. And we do have hackers in here as well. So they they patronize virtual artists or digital artists and programmers and hackers which kind of is a nice it, it's a slight hole in the general science is bad ethos of 90s white wolf i didn't find a lot of science is bad in this book it's more like psychiatry is bad is what they go with so. yes <laughs> i did one thing i caught to with changeling society that surprised me is so talking about commoner society so you have a household around a freehold and then but the motley's I thought I always thought of a motley as just like an oath circle for some reason, but no, this is like they're the anarchists who are opposed to the chi. Yeah, it's. I, I suppose they they shifted the meanings at some point, 
But, but I like that. It's a group. Well, because in the in the lexicon section, it just says Motley, a family or gang of commoners. Yeah. So, you know, I think of Motley yeah. as the party, and that's... Yeah, but now they talk about oath, cir- the oath circles are the party, really, is what it's supposed to be. I suppose it's like a Venn diagram. Yeah, Motley's, as in the bigger Motley write-up, not in the lexicon, they're more presented as... A motley controlling multiple freeholds in the life. traveling around like circus folk. Some of them, some of them stay put. Too. Some of them. So I guess what they mean by gangs, they're talking about like the bigger gangs. I think that's pretty much the whole chapter. We get a little bit about a little preview of the Nunahi nymphs and inanime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has the whole seely unseely thing, which mm-hmm. is the light fae and the dark fae, and the shadow court, which is a little bit confusing because the unseely are not the shadow court. Sometimes it seems to split two ways, sometimes three ways. Just have to roll with it. Yeah, and that's a thing that continues all throughout the line. Ultimately, it does seem that the game makes it very difficult to be truly independent as a changeling. It's not mm-hmm. like the other games. Vampire, you can be an Anarch or an Autarchus. Werewolf, I suppose you can be Ronin or whatever. Mage can be an orphan or just any old mage who likes to hang out by themselves. But changelings... They mention those, but they basically don't seem like player playable characters. Exactly, yeah. It's it's you're sort of obligated to be involved with a motley or a household of some kind. Yeah, it seems like otherwise you become either go to the forgetting quickly, you fall into bedlam, or you become Dante. I think is the yeah, yeah. And they do list family as a theme, that notion of kinship. So, mm-hmm. oh yeah, there's all the stuff on the calendar. Got some festivals. Oh yeah, rulers are appointed by lottery, the royal lottery. So it's like basically voting by the nobles, by the high up, by the dukes. And I think I totally missed the lottery thing the first time I read through. It doesn't seem to make much sense. No, but that's, I mean, that's how actually traditionally a lot of monarchs had been appointed. Like up to like the Holy Roman Emperor was picked that way. Okay, so if a title becomes vacant, I see. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so it's not like there's a term. That makes more sense. Because I mean... Uh, patrilineal descent doesn't work so well with changeling society. Because you're like, no. It's like, oh, you had a puka kid. Hmm. I see no problems here. Yes. I, some she might. That's the. Well. Uh, oh, I like the kin versus canade distinction. That's good too. And autumn people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's good for the setting. And next is storytelling. It is wonderful that we get storytelling as chapter three rather than like chapter nine you know yeah usually gets relegated to the back of the book yep right like the first thing i noticed about that was nobody's expected to have a computer or any sort of anything like that right which makes sense like maybe you'd have a computer and printer but how would that be helpful because you wouldn't help you get character sheets or anything right so precisely gotta photocopy them like a pleb we do get the full list of themes here which i like so you have isolation and alienation then family, romance, wonder, nightmares, freedom and wildness, madness, and humor. Humor's at the end. So take that, everyone who thinks Changeling's just a happy-go-lucky goof fest. Although they do emphasize how much it should be a metaphor for childhood. That's true. But that includes, like, nightmares. <laughs> yeah. Childhood, childhood can be shit. I mean, Yeah, it's pretty scary. I don't want to do it again. No, definitely not. You know, it's one thing to not grow up, because then you finally get childhood figured out. But well, you're new to childhood? No, it's scary. It is a very, I, I mean, in addition to being how to run a game, it's sort of like a paper on 
narrative theory. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the different types of conflict, themes and moods. And then just a big dump of uh, the hero's journey. That's how you know you're in the 90s. Yeah, so the hero's journey, for anyone who isn't familiar, uh, you you have this 12-step process as they lay it out in Changeling. And I think it's also uh, Joseph Campbell who calls it the monomyth and had argued it's sort of the core narrative of like all of the great stories around the world through history, which lots of people mm -hmm. took issue with. Uh, but it was a very popular idea. It's uh, behind uh, things like Star Wars. Right. And Changeling the Dreaming, apparently. So <laughs> Possibly the metaphor. I don't know what we should figure out. Do we want to figure out if the story presented in the back of the book follows the monomyth? I'm sure, I'm sure at least one or two of the stages it does. Yeah, but I don't think either of us are a huge Campbell fans. So maybe well, I, I, I like Campbell, but like many theorists who I enjoy, I try not to accept all his work as the be-all and end-all of the entirety of the human condition. And that's... He's fun to read. Yeah, it does say don't cling to the structure. Good. Yes. <laughs> so I think it's, you know, if you have no idea what you're supposed to do, I mean, it's a place you can make a story with it for sure. Right. All of this is a foundation. This is something to build upon, not something to box yourself in with. But uh, I think I would also say you don't need to use it as the foundation necessarily, as much right. as they, they're implying. I do feel like it is kind of like, again, this is how to tell a story if you're 12 years old. And that's not to cast aspersions on it, but it's it's simple enough to understand. I'm not kind of sure what kind of 12 year olds you know, but I don't think I think you might want to up the age a little bit. Like still teen like teenager, yeah. But uh... as a 12 year old, I would have wanted to tell Changeling stories. <laughs> yes, I mean, I was I was I guess 13 when I first found Changeling. So yeah, I was still in my rifts phase back then. So yeah. Rifts, I don't think you could do the hero's journey with. I mean, you could, but... Well, in any case, we get a bunch of story hooks and chronicle concepts. And something I do like in this chapter also is that they specifically call out advanced techniques, which are very mm -hmm. changeling appropriate. So like how to storytell dreams or flashbacks or plays within plays. Mm -hmm. And having that, I think, is a nice way of complicating the narrative. Yeah, the troop style play makes me think of because the game that I, one game I heard of a lot of that is uh, Ars Magica. So that's going back. To How about that? Also on page one hundred three, we do have what would changelings be like on Deep Space Nine? Could cyberpunk changelings overcome the banality inherent in turning themselves into metallic samurai? And this is the spinoff I need. Yes, this must happen. That photo in the introduction has got me thinking about it. A, a, another thing I've been wanting to do as a chronicle or book or a crossover world of darkness game set in say the modern day world of you know the whatever 20 line stuff but it's mm -hmm. structurally just a game of shadow run i'm into it totally into it perfect let me know when that happens yes <laughs> it's on the list of ideas that are there nice no one feel bad about stealing it though if you if you like that idea no i've got i've got enough theft on my plate um one other note on that same page is we have uh, a dream speaker finds her way into the dreaming and encounters a group of changelings as a possible crossover story idea mm -hmm. and i think this is the first salvo in the war of where is the dreaming located relative to the umbra yes this is something we'll have to bookmark for later yes 
Oh, when we get to dreams and nightmares, the book on the dreaming. Yep. I have a lot of things to say. <laughs> but anyway, that seems, I think that's pretty yeah. much everything for book one. And it's a very rich book one. Mm-hmm. And I think it's my favorite book of the three books in this book. I agree. I mean, it's the it's got the most substance to it, and it's it's not just useful for Changeling. There's lots of great ideas for all games. The most useful for Changeling now, I would say too. Like you take that chapter, mm. very minor setting tweaks, and it's perfect for C twenty. C twenty. Yeah, it's a very useful. And again, compared with the other lines that were around at the time, how refreshing it is to read all of that without like being interrupted by here's all the splats within the, the game and yeah here are disciplines yeah it does build you up to you know now you are ready to start thinking about you know rules right which leads us into book two wilder chapter four rules which is wonderfully short this is very first edition world of darkness yes yeah. i'd say one thing I liked is that basically never make anything difficulty two or not or do two or 10 if you can avoid it, which, mm. uh, you know, is useful advice because you really shouldn't. The game gets really weird at that point. And I don't remember seeing that in everywhere else. The rules are kind of straightforward for that edition. I don't use that edition when I'm running games, but core rules weren't the, they're not terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's very straightforward and we get some examples of roles. Weirdly, we get the sample character sheet before the character creation section. So yes. Or anything that's on the sheet. But yeah, you could start with a sheet and then start yeah. to... In, in other games, in, in other World of Darkness games, you would get all of the character creation stuff before the rules. So you have mm -hmm. already seen the character sheet. Yes. So. so we have... Oh, knocker page. I like that knocker page. Huzzah! I want a knocker. I want a chimerical telephone. Why does the telephone... I just noticed. It's like a classic picture. shows up in other World of... Or other Changeling books. Why does... Is that a telephone? Because it's got a little two-pronged plug i think it's it's a knocker device yes and therefore who knows i'd like to point out also that unlike um a game like vampire that uses lots of punk and rock lyrics for its sort of little epigraphs we have john keats la belle dame de saint merci and other sort of classic poetry and folk music and mm -hmm. whatnot for the chapter headings so that's a nice touch yes but yes character so this i also like it's it's more there is some sort of mechanicy mathy bits in it, which are fairly straightforward. And I'm not sure if even the freebie point chart. I think the freebie chart might have changed by later editions, but it's not a big change. But the the sort mm -hmm. of advice, like it has a talks about how you do character creation, and this is just flat out what it says. It's not giving alternatives. Is everyone shows up and they start working together on making characters. You're essentially doing a session zero. You're coming up with how everyone's tied together. You're coming up with shared themes. You're coming up with, like, you're doing your character together and riffing off each other. Having reasons to be in the same party in the first place. Yes. Why are you in Orc Circle? If you're probably in Orc Circle. It does talk about, like, how most people don't have a mortal life, which is interesting later on the Bedlam rules, but... Or yeah. Bedlam guidelines, but... The question and answers I like too. Oh, at the end. Yeah. Where there's a, an entire set, an entire set of questions just for your oath circle prelude. So. Yep. Yeah, it's like you should answer this in your prelude. I almost feel like there were two different authors writing this section and then one of the earlier sections, and one author was very convinced that all changelings needed to be in an oath circle. But I don't think there's anything wrong with 
I think that is a good default. No, no, not at all. It's just, it's, it leans into the sort of epic approach to the game. You know, everyone has sworn an oath for whatever you're doing in the mm-hmm. Chronicle. Well, that doesn't have to be epic. It's everyone's sworn an oath to run the soup kitchen is... Fair. Mythic, perhaps, rather than epic. Mm-hmm. Yes. Today, in important distinctions. Yes, when you're going to be doing a... It's not just a bunch of friends who hang out together. Again, fairly short, fairly straightforward. And and then, you know, we're getting to chapter six, and we are we still have not seen a splat page, which is astonishing. But I like that. I do like that red cap picture in yeah. chapter five and six. I think that's my favorite red cap picture in Changeling. He's just so grumpy. He's a he's a probably a cuddly guy. You could just... I like the body jewelry. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so we get to chapter six, which is traits, and we start with uh, seemings. So there's something probably one of the biggest changes in C twenty is untangling seeming from actual mortal age because in these earlier editions it's pretty um i mean it's still not set in stone but it says childlings are rarely over 12 years of age wilders are typically between 13 and 25 and grumps are over 25 yeah i think later they also say most grumps only make it to like 35 or so well yeah they say well get up to 40 that's impressive yeah but um as a 41 year old that's an interesting take on changeling for me now at this point but I think it's more, yeah, and it's it's very much like if you're a childling who's over 12, that's, you're very immature, I think is the implication. Same as yeah, and we also have the wildly different temper ratings for glamour, willpower, and banality, which, again, C20 evened out. Mm-hmm. Um, because essentially in, in this edition, childlings are batshit out of their minds, because you have glamour mm-hmm. 5, willpower 1, banality 1, Wilders are sort of passionate, but with a bit of an edge because they have Glamour 4, Banality 3. And then Grumps are just the most miserable people on the planet. Yeah. So... I can't remember in this edition when I got to the rules. I know second edition has this problem where the Grumps, you actually can't really stay playable as with, unless you've like bought up some Glamour with freebies or something. Yeah, no, essentially, because as soon as your Banality is higher than your Glamour, you run into problems. Yep. So I don't mind that they they readjusted that. It does change the dynamic of the game, but I think it's a a fair change. There's one thing that I was wondering about before we got to the kiths is uh, there's a line in here somewhere. It says basically that young changelings often consider their mortal selves to be their true selves. And then older changelings consider the face selves to be the true selves. And I'm like, is that the actual age or time as a changeling? What? And also... Either way, a lot of grumps would be not thinking of the mortal world. Like that, that all just, yeah, it was weird line. But I suppose in a way, I mean, we could get into the theory of subjective perception of time and whatnot. But if someone who's a grump has been awake as a changeling for most of their life, and that's mm-hmm. become sort of their default perception of themselves, whereas a childling has only recently awakened and the whole experience of being fae still kind of feels like the best game of make-believe ever maybe that's kind of part of it it makes you wonder what wilders think yes they're just a mess they're just hormones and gumption that's what they are oh that does fit the age range kind of although again 13 to 25 is also those are wildly different characters like you're 24 or you're 14 like that's you're not the same person at all so it's yeah so then they get into the detailed kith descriptions yes with some cool art, I think. So I, f- I had some notes on some of the kiths uh, for the bog. I mean, we we did a little intro thing, but some stuff that stuck out to me about boggins, for instance, is 
They swear a lot when they're angry. I don't remember that as a stereotype for Boggins. They really hate debts of all kind and hate oaths. They avoid oaths and they don't want to be in debt to anyone and don't want anyone to be in debt to them. Even the unsealy or sealy either both hate that. And I'm like, huh, that, that is not a, those are not things I thought of as Boggin-like before. Yeah. The refusal of oaths, especially. That's surprising. Yeah, not Well, not flat out refusal of oaths, but just rarely enter into oaths of any kind. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. They also apparently hate issue, which, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, those those things, people talking about other things is like, you can tell somebody just made a boggin, and then what the boggin thinks about the other gifts. Like, right. it's not, I wouldn't take any of these as being completely, because there's no way the, there's no way the boggins would really like the knockers that right. much. But I do like, so in the red caps section, uh, the red caps have maybe just one of the best single words in all of the lines, which is just their outlook on the puka is rugs, full stop. Mm-hmm. That's, that is the red cap perspective on puka, rugs. I mean, yeah, in later editions, that shifts to dinner. And that tells you all you need to know about red caps, really. Yeah. So yeah, we, with the red caps, we can we come with them. Like They are so hardcore, unsealy, try to murder the sealy at every step. Is like I'm like, that's not what the earlier part said about the unsealy, <laughs> the sealy, unsealy connection. Yeah. They're also, they're the only kith, and I didn't realize this, they're the only kith without the cannot botch a whatever role so mm. like they have their intimidation um birthright and in c20 they did add in you can't botch intimidation roles but here they can which is interesting yeah i think it's second end they got rid of the botching thing with the knockers but that's another yeah. um but yeah the ish i did have some things i did find the puka so you're a bigger puka fan than i am guilty like i mean i'm fine with them but it's they're really into the trickster thing in this book mm. like in this write-up at least yeah. and like very into the like fish milk type <laughs> more so than some of the later stuff that tries to i mean it's still there in other in, in other editions and other write-ups of puka but it's just so everything's dripping about that in this one and also i'm a little bit confused how the lying thing fits with their outlook write-up of the other kiths because i'm like how's that not the whole truth about like say what they think about boggins well maybe they rolled a willpower roll and yeah there's a lot of that (laughs) yeah i think it's still fine i mean i yes hey i know it's also hard to do that when we when we get to kith book puka it's gonna be it's gonna be an effort to to maintain my but anyway there's a little line um okay so like on one for the for the satyrs for their physical prowess I, I couldn't figure what the rules was referring to. I was looking for it later. Satyrs in their kith goat-legged form can also run 20. I'm like, what is this human versus satyr form thing? Well, I suppose it's just that they run faster if they've called upon the weird or if they're in chimerical. But this rule, this rules, this book doesn't have calling upon the weird. That's true. We'll get into that later. <laughs> <laughs> they were thinking ahead. They were thinking ahead. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah. So there's an interesting. Maybe I missed it, and that's that's quite possible. I did not, and I definitely haven't run games using this and going in depth. But uh, yeah, and I'm not even like complaining about it. Oh, the slua. There's something really. Oh yeah, the she are hurt way more by banality. Yeah, than later things. Yeah, definitely. Again, something that I had missed until uh, going back and rereading this is the piece where it's banality affects them as if it were one point higher than it actually is which means they get yep. double banality more frequently. So. Yes. 
and all sorts of other effects and that yeah flipping legacies that's been around other places but but the, there's something interesting about the slua besides the fact that like you know yeah all the i'll tell you saying before every if you look at every the boggins slightly overweight maybe mm-hmm. and then everyone else is very skinny in the art well may, it's hard to tell with the satyr but the slua is probably like 20 kilos soaking wet yeah yeah, later editions also allow for the bloated corpse look for Slua's. But, uh, that's very fashion. But there's one very interesting thing that's not in the Slua write-up here, and I didn't see anywhere else, although maybe it's in a later part. Mm. And I'm wondering if you can guess what it is. Is it the ghosts? Yes, nothing to do with ghosts. I believe the Kith book is where that's first mentioned. Okay. I think. It's either the Kith book or the Book of Lost Dreams or the players. Like one of yeah. the crossover parts. I'm sure we'll come across it eventually. Because that becomes such a part of the kith later that I found that interesting. Yeah. Do you have anything else about the kith? Yeah, the houses. A lot of this was pretty much like in other editions for the most part. There's a thing that I've maybe shown up in other parts. House, I always say Gwydion. I'm just, I'm just going to say anything in this book the way I always say it. That's fine. And it talks about how House, the founder, like Lord Gwydion remained behind after the shattering and was around for a very long time. So it's like, did he take the changeling away or what? Yeah. So he's, he was around for Napoleon. Like he was friend of Napoleon. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. Also, I found the Gwydion also that they flip into rage when they're hurt too. I don't remember that being in later editions with um, house Liam, because those are the ones who I think of as, oh, they're the ones, some of whom stayed behind on Earth, and we don't see any evidence of that here. Whereas Gwydion, it says, oh, he, you know, Gwydion himself stayed behind. Yes. So I wonder if they just kind of carefully switched that. Well, the, the Gwydion, I think the Liam staying behind was a C20 change. I don't remember it being, part- like, there's, throughout the books, there's talk about various house, like, members of all the houses they've talked about. I've had a few people who've been around during the sure, sure, interregnum. Sure. But yeah, House Liam being a big one that stayed behind, I don't I think that was a C20 innovation. I'll have to check the 2E core book. Yes. But they're not oath breakers in this. Ah. Uh, well and in, in, in C20 they also introduce Autumn She as an entire splat. So the idea that yeah. some measure of all the houses or most of oh, the sorry. houses stayed behind. Sir, they are considered oath broken, but they don't talk about them breaking any oaths. They just aren't disliked. Well, that happens. After that, we get some legacies. Some of the worst art in the book. Sorry, apologies to... I, You know, I won't name names when it comes to the art that I dislike because art yeah. is difficult and people shouldn't be put down for their art. But there is some, there is some weird-ass art in this chapter, is all I'm saying. I mean, some of the art I like. Not all of it is terrible, in my opinion. But some of it is. Yes. Yeah, the legacies have every changeling core book, every tabletop changeling core book. I do not like the legacies because they do too much to make Sealy good, Unsealy bad. And even though other places they don't really have that, this is like really enforced. And I don't. There's a few which I think are maybe less problematic than others. But yeah, certainly in this initial initial batch before we get to the ones from the player's guide. Mm hmm. But it's also unlike games with nature and demeanor, where one is always on the surface and one is always underneath. The implication in changeling is that you do switch legacies pretty mm-hmm. frequently, and 
your affiliation with a court, that may determine which one you have uh, active most often. But, you know, you are always both Sealy and Unsealy. Yes. But what, what, I, what I mean is, if you look at the descriptions of the courts as political entities, mm-hmm. or the, the codes, because earlier the Sealy court has a code and the Unsealy court has a code, right? Honor is a lie. Yeah, I don't think those really match up well with the legacies, but... Yeah, perhaps not. It's a it's a little sticking point I've had with because it's yeah there's other there's that player's guide the LARP books also have the same sort of stuff the player's guide does so it's and then we get yeah the legacies just cover how you regain willpower basically and then there's like a quest the ring of willpower ban is just a thing you should avoid but it's not really any teeth to it the nature demeanor analog yes and then we get to attributes you know what you're physically good at socially good at mentally good at oh. There's hard rules for appearance. Like appearance does something mechanically in this. I'm not saying that's good, but it's a cap for certain types of die rolls. It's a cap on how many successes you can get. Yes. Well, I think appearance needs to be needs to have some defense because I know people throw it out and say it's the worst stat and you know mm-hmm. do all homebrew sorts of stuff to get rid of it. But I like using appearance in active ways. Yeah. And it's it's and it and I mean when you're having the she <laughs> Exactly. You need it, right? Mechanically. But in some other editions and some other books of other games, appearance does have the problem of not doing anything mechanically. So I think it yeah. does need mechanical and it can get specialties and it, and there's still no rules for when you'd actually roll it here. But well. That being said, it does. The description does also have the unenviable uh, phrase, making it impossible for an ugly person to achieve anything beyond minimal success, which is pretty dismal. Yes, we'll we'll overlook that. Um, it's a game, so then we get some abilities. Yeah, I do like how um, you know in the sort of ongoing debate about whether secondary abilities should be ditched or not, we have like the list of talents, and then it just says other talents at the end and says instruction intrigue search seduction so it's allowing for the possibility that people who have played other world of darkness games may want to bring in secondary abilities Mm -hmm. but just kind of leaves them to the side well another thing that's uh playing into crossover debates is in this book kenning is not the same as the awareness ability at all right it's only changeling stuff but in c20 for instance it is the awareness yep. ability yep which is why you can get into arguments on, if you get into arguments on the internet you should clarify which editions <laughs> we were talking about the abilities so there's a few if you think that uh, another one is there's some name rearrangements that's done after this so you have myth lore which is what i'd think of as gray mary mm-hmm. or gray mare and then gray mare in this which one remember what i'd call past lives or remembrance there we go remembrance not past yeah. lives none of that werewolf talk that's werewolf right past lives yeah maybe or is it mage? Oh, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it's remembrance here. Well, yes, it's not remembrance here, but in the future, it will be yeah. remembrance. We also have um, chimerical items are under treasures rather than associated with companions. And treasure just is like minor, useful, significant, powerful, and incredible power. And when we do get to the treasure section, you'll see how that can be a bit confusing. Indeed. And then we have tempers, glamour, willpower, and banality, and health. Yeah, so you can lose... I don't remember this being a later rule. You can lose... A, you can sacrifice a permanent to fill up your temporary? I remember that being a thing for glamour. I don't know 
I don't remember that being a thing for willpower, and I don't remember it being a thing in any of the other games. Yes. I mean, technically, if you want to really, really rules lawyer, because that's the best way to play Changeling, you could do that with Banality, mm. too. But Right. Um, well, and, and Banality is also the only one that turns from 10 temporary into a permanent. So I guess it immediately shifts, shifts back again, if you follow Mm. um you can oh yeah willpower regaining there's an interesting complication here so in all the world of darkness games including changeling you know you get a good night's sleep you can regain willpower except for this book where you can only do that if you're in your mortal seeming and in the mundane world so if you're sleeping in a freehold or whatever or in the dreaming, you don't get your willpower back. Which is important. I'd also like to note that one of the uses for Glamour is that you can spend one point to place an additional bunk card on a cantrip. Yes. <sighs> for all you Changeling fans who've never read first edition, you're going, what? We're, we're getting there. We're almost there. Yeah. Anything else for chapter six slash book two, Wilder? Uh, no. The meaty book. So book three, Grump. Chapter seven, Glamour. Did you ever see Party Monster, the film, where they have the song Money, Success, Fame, Glamour? That's what I think of. No. Anyway, something that I was specifically looking for when I started reading this was any kind of reference to the concept of, quote, dark glamour. And and now dark glamour is officially a thing in C20, but when -hmm. people say, oh, you know, glamour used to just all be bright and happy and it should have had darkness and whatever really strikes me as sort of amoral in this edition. Yes. All of the ways that they describe it, they're very sensory and not very associated with particular acts or particular attitudes. Yes. So given what you were saying about how the Unsealy legacies by and large are kind of, you know, awful people, it would stand to reason that glamour that they're associated with is going to be equally filled mm-hmm. with rage or filled with terror or filled with melancholy or any of these other things so glamour yeah uh, the first paragraph is about the best you could (laughs) the living font of all spiritual energy glamour flows from the dreaming to the earth indeed glamour is concentrated dreams comprising magic life and beauty its truth is hard to fathom perhaps impossible the wisest wisest changelings have spent lifetimes studying it trying to understand it yet it remains a mystery and it's what changelings are what makes changelings changelings really and it's magic fairy magic it sustains them yes and it comes from the dreaming flowing to earth and that's why humans are creative Mm -hmm. because they tap into the glamour of the dreaming according to this chapter i think of it like a give and take relationship a cycle oh yeah this is not a thing that's been consistent throughout changeling but i just found it interesting in this part yeah It's, it's so very just yep that's what glamour is we don't know a lot about it but we know that about it but we also have storytelling glamour sidebar where they say, when described glamour, appeal to all five senses. It feels warm, hot, cold, soft, silky. It smells like rose petals, dark musk, patchouli oil, sweet clover, a midnight breeze. It tastes like honey and wine. It looks like a rainbow caught in a tie-dye factory, which is a great image, I have to say, uh, and so forth. So having that, you know, it's it's raw experience when you describe it or encounter it. And it's interesting how it very specifically does not say it's evil, it's good, you know. We get a little bit of that when it talks about Epiphany and how changelings get glamour by either ravaging mortals or mortal dreamers or 
using reverie to inspire them, or rapture to just do something themselves. Yes, and it doesn't really talk about, say, freeholds, which would also be another method. But yeah, so ravaging, you use banality to rip the glamour out of someone. It's not a pleasant experience for them and has the potential of gaining you banality. Yes. Uh, Reverie, which I always just think of muses because I can't remember which one reverie is supposed to be. Hmm. It's the... Actually, yeah, sorry. How would you describe reverie, I guess? Or, Or ravaging. Reverie, reverie is like you, you get to meet a painter and you become a painter's model. And through modeling for that painter, you get that, you know, painter full of glamour, which you then absorb some of. That's, that's reverie to me, building the relationship and having this mutually beneficial art creation kind of thing or dream creation. Yes. Because not all dreamers need to be artists. And then rapture is the changeling essentially inspiring themselves because they have a face side mm-hmm. and a mortal side. And it's not easy at all to do. It is not, but it's super powerful if you do it right. Mm-hmm. I, I think the only way besides spending experience to get permanent glamour. Yes. Oh, yeah. They do mention, by the way, you can only use Ravaging and Reverie on a dreamer. And it says it's about, yeah, about one in a thousand are dreamers. So they're not common at all, but changelings can sense them anyway with kenning and whatnot, which I always think is fun. It's like you're walking down the street you're like, huh, that person's interesting. And it might not look at all different on the outside. Mm -hmm. sometimes it's just the vibe or the tie-dye smell something and then there's also dross which is glamour in physical form which is a bunch of different kinds some is glamour formed into objects some is like chimeras like things made out of glamour some is like pieces of art changeling treasures yeah that kind of thing but most of those you can't refresh your refresh your own glamour pool from it's just you use it and spend it right away for something else. And it keeps talking about using it as money. And I'm like, that's not what money is. Anyway. Right. People seem to have wildly different opinions on how much dross is floating out there because that, that money thing, using it as currency implies that everyone has a pocket full of dross, which doesn't really, doesn't really track for me. Um, I guess if someone wants to run a high glamour game, it's fine, but I think it's Mm -hmm. better when it's a, more precious commodity that fits more with the themes of the game to me. Yeah, I've always had it as more precious as well. Yeah, and there's interesting the laws of glamour. This is stuff I don't think of as glamour at all. Hmm. You can never replace truth, so you can't make a perfect copy with it. I mean, it's interesting. It's just I never. Some of it works its way into the later stuff, I think. Yeah. Like chimerical food not being nourishing. It might taste mm. good, but it doesn't fill you up. Yep. That makes staying in the dreaming for a period of an extended period of time very fun. Yeah. I'm looking at the next page and I'm looking at the C word. <laughs> Cantrips. Oh boy, here we go. I, I think this, notor- is... this is the most notorious part of this edition. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Let's just for context, I think we need to explain, you know, to the young folks. So back in nineteen ninety-three, there was this game that came out called Magic the Gathering. Some of you may have heard of it. Uh, And I don't think it's a far cry to say that it really revolutionized the gaming landscape in the sense that suddenly everyone was playing collectible card games. Every company under the sun was creating a collectible card game. Like there were hundreds at the time that Changeling came out just floating around. There was even another Changeling collectible card game. Yeah. Well, I'd like to think they started that after they started the books, but who knows? So yeah, so it was a craze and it's a craze that has abided to the present day to some extent 
And my feeling is just, you know, someone at the White Wolf office has said, we should get in on this. Let's stick some collectible cards into Changeling. I heard a rumor it was from their distributor, but I can't remember where I heard that rumor from, so I don't know how much we should trust it. But somebody somewhere said, oh yeah, the distributor made him do it. I'd believe it. I would absolutely believe it because it's solely a cash grab. I mean, mm-hmm. as, as with any sort of collectible commodity. Yes. But making one fundamental to the playing of the role-playing game is what I find so egregious. And granted, they did they did very quickly, even in the core book, they kind of give an alternate system and then quickly dropped the cards in favor of the alternate system. Yes. But just the fact that the cards were sort of in the mix from the start is like, come on. But it, it, it does. Yeah. Okay. So there's four types of cards. They list three here and then they list another one later because that's also helpful. So you have art cards, realm cards, bunk cards, and nightmare cards. Yeah. So in Changeling mechanically, even though you have the cards, you still have to purchase your arts and realms. And your art is sort of what magical effect you have in the realm is what you do it to. But uh, actually, uh, you you seem to have a better handle on this system than I do. It's an angry handle off of which I might fly, but yes, I'll try. Yes, go for it. Well, so yes, essentially every art, because the, there are six arts divided into five powers, and each of those has its own card. Similarly, there are five realms, which we'll get to that later each of which has five ranks of its own. So there are individual cards for each of those. What I've always wondered is what was the distribution of cards in the actual packs that you could buy at the store? Because if you have to use the cards to do cantrips, doesn't that mean you have to have those dots on your character sheet? You know? Yeah. So, like, so that's one. Yeah, you hurdle. have to buy it and you have to pay for their experience. And they have to match. Although... They also have later in the PDF. I don't. It's in, at least in the PDF on page two eighty nine, two eighty eight. Is it the make your own thing? Yeah. Yeah. So you can just make your own. Yeah. So like, really, really not. It's like somebody was was uh, sticking to the technicality of what they had to do. Yeah. Not wanting to actually promote this collectible card game. In any case, <laughs> it's. So we're already we're already at a disadvantage here. But when you want to cast a cantrip, you you have all your arts and realms in your hand of cards. You take the art and the realm that you want to use. You can combine realms to do a greater sphere of influence, but you have to pay glamour for additional realms. And then mm-hmm. you have a deck of bunks, which I believe are random, and you draw mm-hmm. a random bunk, and you then have to perform the action. The bunks are, you know, range from graffiti. There's to something doing... about eating a sandwich or something in one card. Yeah, you can spend a glamour to draw an additional bunk. And then uh, once you perform the bunk, the bunks also have levels. And the greater level of the bunk, the more um, effective the magic is. Uh, you also have to overcome the target's banality, which has stayed into future editions. Uh, and then once the cantrip has ended, successfully or not... You take the cards back into your hand, except for one card of your choice, which is immediately discarded. Yes. Uh, unless you spent a point of glamour. If it's not clear yet, this was a very confusing system for people to try to follow. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I just discarded my art of that level. So I guess I can't do that. And when do you refresh? After a deep, satisfying, and prolonged rest, such as between stories. 
Also, oh, um, fun. Reverie or Rapture can refresh a number of cards equal to the number of glamour points gained. So wow. yeah. <laughs> and then there's the advanced cantrip cast. Let's just let's just skip over that. Let's just keep going. Yeah, well, it means you can stack with you can team up with each other and and then immediately they have the, the alternative dice system, so you don't have to use right. cards. Although with the with the advanced methods, that is, it does explain how you get nightmare cards, yes. uh, which is essentially when you're about to gain temporary banality, you can instead put a nightmare card into your um, bunk deck, mm-hmm. and then when you reveal it, you you have a nightmare of some sort. So yes. Now, if you decided let's let's not use the cards, and you're just because you're still rolling dice too on top of all this, right? And mm-hmm. just just roll the dice. Um, you're still doing things like so. Every art like has it has a attribute associated. So like chicanery has manipulation. We said there were six six arts, five yeah. realms. So there's three attributes that don't have an art. Okay, and well, and and, and the core book, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it's like uh, chicanery, and then yeah, the realm determines also what ability you're rolling in a way they've aligned it with like vampire where each separate discipline power has its own or most most of them have an attribute plus ability combination except it's a lot more remixable with arts and realms. Do you have any particular arts you want to highlight in here not arts as a whole just some of the changes that they've made between well first and second are the ones that stand out to me and then to c20 as well things like um yeah as a brief rundown we have chicanery which is the art of sort of illusion and emotional manipulation legerdemain which is illusions and sleight of hand you have primal which is nature um, natural power shape-shifting stuff like that Susay is understanding the nature of glamour and the forces of fate sovereign is the noble art of commanding people and wayfair moves things very quickly so primal for example mm-hmm. in second edition which was my first experience the healing magic and there's heather bomb and holly strike so healing and harming and those are both level four which always seems strange to me because they talk about the healing magics of the fae all the time and getting to primal four isn't that easy uh so in first edition healing is at primal two it's its own power so it makes a little more sense when you look at first edition or things like soothsay they kind of Mm -hmm. moved the powers around chicanery they switched a couple things so the arts as a whole stayed the same, but the individual powers have shifted from addition to addition. The realms. Oh, I forgot about this. Each level of each realm. So like actor one is empathy. Actor right. two is streetwise because your personal contacts you use streetwise for. Which I suppose it's it's meant to encourage well-rounded characters, but it just doesn't work. <laughs> so. Yes. And... So, you, like you said, there's five realms. People know in the later editions, there's six, and two and two of them are special. Here, there's five realms, and they're all very similar, which means there's the scene realm. So the other realms, besides that the ability thing, are very similar to later editions. The scene realm, yeah. is, it's not a modifier realm. It's what, except for sometimes it is, <laughs> it's what you're actually targeting with your role. But like, for instance, Hopscotch, it doesn't do what I thought it did before. So it doesn't let you make a buildings, set of buildings hop. But it does, <laughs> it describes where you are leaping. Yeah, you target an area. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, I think that's why they changed scene, because it doesn't always work out. Yeah, you're using wits plus politics to make a housing block have no hmm. gravity. Sure. Yeah, Wayfair 4 Scene 5 makes perfect sense. But you need to have those cards in your hand and then 
do the appropriate bunk that you randomly draw from your deck. Yes. So you might be blowing a bubble on bubblegum. I remember that's another one. Is everyone still with us on the cantrip system? Because I don't, I'm not sure yes. that I am. But you can get two bunks. Yeah. If you spend glamour, then you do two things, and you're even better at making everything float with your politics roll, with plus politics roll. And we do get a full list of the bunks after the Arts and Realms, so you don't really need the cards even. It's all listed right there. Yes. Along with the nightmares. Yeah. Well, and they have the little template where you can just right. photocopy right, and right, print right. out your own cards. It is interesting, though, that um, in addition to the level of bunk, you also get variable numbers of successes from it, which I suppose is part of why you would want to, you know, when you're drawing the cards randomly, if you have something that comes up, it's a level one bunk, but it gives you three successes. That's pretty awesome. So, because it's not difficulty manipulation, mm-hmm. it's successes. Yeah. I mean, difficulty manipulation has its own issues later in other editions, but. Anyway, that's cantrips. We should probably talk about it more when we get to the player's kit where they, you know, add yeah. more cantrip rules. And and the nightmares. And the too. nightmares, you also, yeah. You get basically curses, like all your temporary glamour is gone, or you can't, the cantrip you cast just reverses itself. Or Botch you know, our next you, roll. Yeah, it's like, cool, but I can sort of see it. That is hard. Some of this, the, the bunks and nightmares are hard to replace, though. As is, I can see, like, if you were just trying to use this book and not use the cards, you'd be like, right. what is this? Yeah. But that's enough of the really silly cantrip rules. Anyway, treasures. So, yeah, there's different categories of treasures, and I don't remember seeing... This, I think, gets dropped by second edition, but you have chimera... Which are just chimerical items. Later, pricks. So. Yeah, you have pricks, which can store... You can stick, you basically get a little box that you stick your glamour cards into. Right. Noble treasures, which, okay. That's, I don't know why that's a separate category. It just tells who uses them. Uh, some Talismans, which are what treasures are in second edition. And then legendary treasures. I think with noble treasures, it's when they're talking about things like the ducal sword or the ducal seal or the king's whatever. So they're associated mm-hmm. with a title. Or the little pendant thing. Yeah. So there's a bunch of little treasures here. They are neat and evocative. I would have liked more rules for them, maybe, if that's not too knocker or banal. I kind of like <laughs> it. I, I don't know. I like it. Because it's before they decided to make a rigorous system about, like, you know, use an art to represent the treasure's power. Yeah. It was just, let's make some items. Oh, no, I don't. I think that's too restrictive. But, like, I would have liked, I don't know, what the treasure rating is to get it. That's fair. Or maybe, and there's some things in here where you're like, I can see needing to roll dice. Maybe it could tell us what dice to roll. Well, would you perhaps like to to share your favorite treasure from the list of treasures? Yes. My favorite, there's a lot of neat treasures in here, but my favorite would be Baldaz's Everfolding Box. It's a cardboard carton, and you can manipulate it by flipping around to matchbox to carton size, which I think they're talking about cigarette cartons. Oh, I thought it meant like a much larger. (laughs) Maybe, yeah. I don't know what a curtain is in that. Anyway, um, no matter how much, uh, it always is weightless. You can't do it while anybody's around. Oh, if you play something in it, it's a normal weight. And then you can refold it and to hide things. And you have to unfold it. You do a complicated folding arrangement and someone else has to unfold it. It's basically an origami. Yeah, origami cardboard box of holding origami box of holding there you go yes i i'd love it except for i would lose so many things in that and couldn't remember the exact pattern to get it back again or screw it up you just keep trying and you find things that previous owners have left in there yes (laughs) 
Yeah, it just seems fun. It's one of those, like, I want I want this in a yeah. Changeling game, I think. Or Mage game, or Nobilis game, or Exalted game. I'd want it in a game with Fair. magical stuff. I'm going to go with the Orb of Abullion, which is essentially a disco ball that emits an aura of euphoria. And very simple, very straightforward, but that's that's my style. You know, compulsory dancing. And there is actually um, mm-hmm. a treasure card analogous to the cantrip cards depicted here with a groovy satyr dancing under the orb of a bullion. Are they supposed, did they actually have treasure cards or is that just like a, it's an excellent question. I assume from this that they did, but I haven't seen one before. So glamor and next would be systems, which is again, very, very straightforward and similar to the other world of darkness games to an extent. At least at the start. I mean, going through experience points, how to get them, how to get them, how to spend them. It has an interesting thing where if you have a mentor background, you get you get discounts. I think that was in yeah. other early edition games. I know some version of Mage has that, or maybe the mentor or library in some version of Mage. It makes the experience mm-hmm. costs less onerous, definitely. I mean, these are yeah. deep discounts, so. For example, a character with four dots and mentor can roll four dice, difficulty six. Each success subtracts one from the experience mm-hmm. cost to learn an art or realm. Yes. That's that's hefty. Mm-hmm. I mean, that can be a whole level right there. And then the main uh, system that we get first is Bedlam. You call it a system. I think that's a strong word for it. Well, it's not a dice-based system, but they do. Yes. I mean, they have the warning signs checklist, and they have sort of different effects at the different thresholds. They also name drop um, the Cup of Dreams for the first time, which is one of those weird meta plot things that like it occasionally pops up, but you really have no idea what it is until in C20 we got the fourth Immortalized novel, which was about the Cup of Dreams. So Bedlam's so punishing and it's so arbitrary on the storyteller side. I've I've had trouble with it. Well, the second edition had some very similar system, and I've I've always had trouble with that. I don't I think. C20s become not punishing enough, but it, at least I don't feel like, oh yeah, your character's screwed. Yeah. Just I have to imagine there was arbitrarily There must it. have been some focus group discussion where people said, we're tired of paying so much attention to maintaining the balance between glamour and banality. And so they just yeah. defanged both of them to some extent. Yeah. Like, I, 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 but banality at least still, like, C20 has a system for it. Bedlam. Right. It, it's nothing as like I would have liked a system that kind of employs some things on this warning side checklist, even if it's a bit defanged, right? But it's like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna go party it off in the dreaming and do all the things on this list, and nothing counts. Yeah. A that. middle ground would be nice. Anyway, after that, yeah, after that, courtly love, which I always think of as like you know the band Hole whenever I hear about it. Excellent. <laughs> the art on these pages, it's like we have. The way I would describe this, we have one piece of art where it's Zoro, but his head is a cube, and he's about to suck the life out of a she-maiden. And then on the other page, we have Seder orgy about to begin. Well... Seder and she, perhaps. Yeah, it, There's nothing implying an orgy in that picture. Actually. That's fair. Well, yeah, someone's painting it. So. I guess maybe they're looking at somebody, maybe. Could be a threesome. Yes. Curious art choices. Um, so yeah, it's all... The laws of love is like, what is that yeah. about? And Nobles the Shining Host leans hard into that. But we'll get to that eventually. Yeah. We've yeah. also got a number of oaths. I like, I love oaths in Changeling. Yeah. 
I think especially when they have a nice little benefit a nice little um glamour bump and, that, and that's in, in the lerp especially like oaths are like so core mechanic yeah. we've got a section on the mists including the mists chart i i stopped to think about the mechanics of the mist comas and i was just thinking if you think about you know how frequently people must get enchanted how frequently that must lead to them encountering chimerical stuff that knocks them out or whatever there must be a lot of people falling into inexplicable comas around the world of darkness yes so the mists for people by the way is it's basically a side effect of banality later editions talk more about it as being actually maybe of the dreaming but it's it's essentially the more banal you are the less you remember of changeling stuff including being enchanted actually in this all changeling stuff is enchanted yeah this this book yeah and you you lose your memories or fall into a coma when you you know come back out of the dreaming or out of glamour space into the autumn world Mm -hmm. so we have that we have a section on enchantment and what that entails for mortals and then we get chimera Mm -hmm. this is the fun part it really is i like so you have like chimera are just yeah things formed of dreams dreams come to life Mm -hmm. so you have chimerical animals chimerical items chimerical people chimerical carpets chimerical giant castles chimerical islands are described at one part (laughs) chimerical baklava yes but that's not very filled actually that is kind of baklava tastes nice but i wouldn't have it probably super tasty though yes but yeah there's chimerical monsters you can go around fighting things and all sorts of stuff and uh mortals don't really notice or see them so you can that's another problem i guess with being a 40 year old uh uh, Trump is uh, oh no I need to fight this uh, monster and uh, I'm just sort of standing there like swinging my fake sword around and people might take issue with that but you know you just just enchant them and then if the monster eats them they'll be in a coma for yeah but if I'm doing it on like a busy street or something or just out by a street where a lot of people can see that gets difficult I fail to see the problem yes Oh, they have banality resistance rules. That I don't remember seeing in later editions. Uh, the I can't remember how to pronounce this. Siokshin? Shihoin, I believe, is the proper uh, okay. Irish pronunciation, which means peace or the peaceful ones or something. Mm-hmm. This are and we actually de- declared as being real. Yeah, <laughs> just hundred percent there. Given examples of a few named examples. Yes, specifics, which they very much walked back in second edition and then kind of walked back the other mm-hmm. way in c20 so um, yeah and at least one of them's not very night nice but uh... yeah yeah so lord yarbonel rules a kingdom of chimera on a fairy isle hidden somewhere in the caribbean and he's the most arrogant and haughty of the kithane and that i am curious why he has never appeared again so yeah these are people who have managed changelings who managed to find the balance between banana banality and glamour and they become immortal as a result. Yeah. So it's the uh, Galconda, or kind of the oracles. Yeah. Or, And then we get into like the actual damage mechanics and injury, which the interesting thing here is there's no aggravated damage. There's real damage, and there's chimerical damage, and that's it. Beautiful. And Cold Iron is given yeah. some attention as well. Yeah, it's a special kind of both damage. It's actually, it might be like the shortest health and healing section in all of the books. Mm -hmm. There's nothing about temperature or electricity or or any of these other things that you often see. 
Oh, and this cold and this one cold iron is pure iron, not steel or any other sort of alloy, which has its own problems. Every definition of cold iron has problems, but we'll we'll have to do a mini sode on that because I have thoughts and feelings. Yes. Well, I have like what I'd like it to be, and then I have what the books say it is, and like right. they're not really the same. And there the twain shall meet. Anyway, yeah. anything else for chapter eight, or shall we move on to the... No, chapter nine. It is a little... I do have a little bit of a naming issue, because this is systems, and then we have drama, which is just more detailed systems. Right. This is... And even dramatic systems in the drama chapter takes up yes. a lot yeah. of it. But we get sort of the explanation of things like scenes, turns, initiative, all of the things you'll need to run the extremely complicated WAD combat system. Yep. Although it's less complicated in this version. I'm not saying it's better. It's just less complicated. Well, and, and I understand. I mean, when I first encountered it in Vampire, it made sense to, you know, to think, oh, sure, the person who gets the highest initiative should go last so that they can react best to yeah. what's going on around uh, them. But that's, I don't think that's what they have in this book. It's not. <laughs> so, yep. But it's, it's along those lines. So. Yep. Yeah. You just split your dipole. It just means take your lowest of the applicable thing and just uh, split it. Right. Well, no, I, I'm sorry. So I'm remembering now it's, yes, I, I looked on 252. The winner declares her action last, but performs it first which oh. makes more sense. It's still really confusing, but it makes sense. Mm -hmm. I don't remember that in here. Oh, there's freeform. I'm a little bit confused what the freeform combat optional is actually different from how it's different from the earlier stuff. I just, I just wing it whenever I do combat, to <laughs> be honest. Yeah. Oh, I, oh, I'm only paying attention to this for this episode of the podcast. Yeah, no, exactly. Going to, I am not trusting that this is like deeply play tested and like right. I should just, yeah. And especially things in the world of darkness books, things like the firearms charts are always kind of confusing and full of holes, and they've left things out and made contradictions. Yeah. And it never bothers me because I never look at them because I never run like yeah, you know, Boondock Saints firefights. And, and to be fair, like. This is, it's not like the World of Darkness books were particularly unusual of the time, like of this era sure. for that, for other role-playing games. I mean, I was playing D&D 2nd Edition at the time, and we had Thaco, so. I can't even tell if, anyway, that's a total digression. I can't tell if 3rd Edition actually got rid of Thaco or just changed the names of things. I still have not been able to work that out. Probably the latter. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I don't have much to say on Chapter 9. We just, uh, we have a bunch of systems, and then we have more on the combat systems. Maybe the one thing that stands out is that one of the mental systems that's listed is dream interpretation. And it's sort of highlighted as something mm. especially um, valuable for changelings. So I kind of like that that's mm -hmm. in there. There's also seduction and sneaking and credibility and other stuff, but um, yeah, mm -hmm. things that matter to the Kithane. Oh, and we do get the nice little um, example of play. I say nice, it's actually kind of yeah. weird. That art, like you've complained about, you talk about you don't like the art and other things, and I don't like the art here. But everything about the art and layout just looks like it's a different book, too. Yeah. Well, there's a neat sort of stained glass effect, but it's very sort of flat, and the eyes are scary. Really hard to read the text. Also that. But it's good to have the examples of how combat actually runs. Mm -hmm. 
And I do like after that the uh, Swan Maiden She, mechanical Swan Maiden She. Mm. After the at the end of the chapter, she's on the cover of Nobles the Shining Host. She's the sort of yes. other she. Prepare for what's going on with her dress. She's Dougal. Is she a Dougal? Okay, so she's apparently replacing some issue with her legs with a griffin thing, perhaps with a beetle yes. emblem. I'm not sure if that's actually part of the picture, diegetic, or if it's like. Either way, it could go either way. Yes. Okay. And then we're on to 261, the appendix. The Fomori. Right. Not the Fomorians, but the Fomori, who are, you know, clearly the werewolf ones ported in. Yeah. So these are corrupted and... But I think it's like they got the Fomorians from this write-up. Basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Including the ignoring banality. Completely immune to glamour. What is that supposed to mean if you're using this as antagonist? Does that mean like arts don't work on them? I or just they don't, don't feel creative. <laughs> Do you know it's it's one of those things where I guess they felt like they should stick it in and then realized after the fact they had to create rules and meta plot around it. Mm-hmm. So so maybe we should just treat this as a one off thing and use the werewolf book instead. Yes. You have Orphan Chimera which we had earlier stuff about them, but I guess we get more rules here and stuff, more detail. Well, and we have uh, powers, which eventually became reeds. So the different sort of yes. little charms that Kimura have. Which I think is honestly like, yeah, okay, maybe I'm a rules person, but like this, I think this is the extent of the rules I need. Because unless you're doing character creation, I don't know. I don't, I think it's fine to not have to use a point system to make your NPCs. Yeah. Uh, but yes, this cool little evocative. The Black Dog! And it doesn't actually run a role-playing game company. Well, thank goodness for that. And they have never... Hey! They weren't made up for the Knocker Kith book. The Tinkerbells. Yes. We have some mages and wraiths. And then we have the Autumn People. Which... Yeah. I don't know. How do you feel about the whole Anton Stark sub-meta plot? Or meta subplot, I suppose. Is a sub-meta plot um, just a plot? I think the... Yes, I think it's the plot. I don't know. That, well, it depends. How many books does it go across? It's in this one. It's in The Autumn People. It's in The Book of Storyteller Secrets. It's alluded to in the Immortalized Trilogy. So, like, most of first edition. And then I think by second edition, they had mostly dropped it. I think that's a meta plot. Yeah. Could be a minor meta plot. I'm, I don't know, I don't actually, I don't know, the mists keep making it slip from my mind, so. Yeah, the Dantain here, it's, uh, yeah, like, the Autumn People and Dantain, I'd say, are very much like in the later Autumn People book, and in second edition. And it's very, um, if the Autumn People are the humans with exceptionally high banality, and the Dantain are mm-hmm. the Fae who have been lost into banality, but remember who they are and have weird, twisted powers as a result, I find that compelling, like those two elements, mm-hmm. because it's almost like a dark mirror of the Kithane hanging out with kooky humans who are dreamers and artists, you know, so there is that sort of inversion. But yeah. it's that psychiatry is evil part that keeps coming through. Is it psychiatry? Oh, no, it is psychiatry in part, yeah. I mean, as someone who's been in the psychiatry system for a very long time and psychological health things including starting in the 90s the problem is it's the only example of it in change right 
and it's presented as... if it's like these are the bad psychiatrists yeah. and psychologists that's different yeah and it's also doing i think falling a little bit into the uh someone's got adhd so that's terrible that we've given them medication to help them but yeah i mean i imagine psychiatry in the 90s was very different than psychiatry today so there's that mm-hmm. and there is obviously a long history of people being ostracized and institutionalized for being peculiar but mm-hmm. to kind of inculcate that systematically into the game is a little you know yeah so i can't remember how c20 handles it if they... i think c20 kind of is more it's more like what you just said there's the bad psychiatrists yeah. and then the nice ones you know or the the more open-minded ones mm-hmm. so but he's a psychologist oh that's a thing too you're in the US right so i'm like <laughs> They're they're very different. They're yeah. very different professions here. So I get I well. He's. I mean, yes. Theory. To be fair, I think in the system, Anton Stark is the sort of theoretical psychologist who informs the practice of the individual psychiatrists. So that's the yeah. Anyway, but they're a whole class of antagonist, which frankly haven't gotten yeah. a really. I mean, we have the autumn people, but that's probably the shallowest possible write-up for such a like you know large section of humanity and also like i get the impression just in general when i talk about banality here just even compared to second edition there's just a lot more autumn people yeah definitely they're everywhere yep and then we have the prodigals where there's only two of them it's interesting there's no mummies because there was mummies in earlier books they were they were in their they were sleeping in uh duat at the time so, yeah but i do like how changelings it's like oh yeah vampires are just red caps who went weird you know werewolves are just puka yeah. who went weird so actually does it say that here maybe not about the garu the red cap thing is definitely in there yeah i don't think they're thought yeah 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 they're not they're not puka specifically because that's just weird like right. that because this book does imply that like and it even mentions i can't remember where in the setting thing there's like a whole bunch of other kiths mentioned like very yeah. briefly and that's supposed to be just scattered like there's supposed to be tons of kiths but this is like you're playing a concordia game these are the most right. common kiths and it's it even does say that the most common kiths and 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 it implies yeah. there are many more yeah at some point in here they talk about the minhune uh the tengu in japan and like other ones so yeah there is that worldwide sensibility hovering under the surface yeah and i think they even imply one of the ones in china and they're like actually changelings yeah. So on the next page, page 270, we have a werewolf in Krino's form being glitter-bombed. I'm not sure what to make of this art. I, I thought it was like a Sailor Moon-type transformation. Oh, that could be. <laughs> With blood? Sailor Garu. Yes. <laughs> um, we'll add that for the... Wait for that to get one of the PCs in the uh, Shadowrun. Yeah. World of Darkest game. But then we get the introductory setting and sample story so before the days of the quick start there were core books that would occasionally tuck the intro story into the end of the book Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about this intro story i didn't really read it (laughs) i am i just i have such an my brain just skips off of anything like this in any game and i will make more of an effort when the books we're dealing with books that are entirely about it but it's just I just keep saying, oh my god, is this related to Sam Hate with Hate Ashbury? Wasn't that, that, that was part of the bad joke, wasn't it? 
I don't know. I, mean, I don't think Sam Hate ever actually shows up in Changeling, but oh, uh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, what do you think of it? That's a better question. I mean, so San Francisco is one of my favorite cities. Uh, I enjoy going there. I do think it is probably the best choice they could have used for the sort of sample city, because mm-hmm. so vampire vampire is strongly associated with Chicago in the initial you know core book yeah. and the initial meta plot. Werewolf, I guess New York, because you had like the Sept of the Green and all of that. Yeah. Which I is, thought it was Appalachia. That too. Um, anything that Jackie and Nikki were writing, I suppose, would be Appalachian inflected. Mage, I don't know that Mage has ever had like a single... Las sp- Vegas. Well, sure, yeah, but before that, <laughs> Wraith does not apply. Um, so- R- R- Wraith has uh, Rome, basically, but oh. dead Rome. Yeah. Well, I've never played it, so I don't... I don't know. Yes. But so San Francisco makes the most sense to me for a changeling setting because the weirdness is so worked into the fabric of it. And a lot of it has eroded now because of the tech boom and everything. Yeah, Um, the banality ate it all. Whoa, maybe they are right about technology. Not all of it, but a lot of it. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. um, I've I've never been to San Francisco, unfortunately. Oh, it's lovely. Anyway, back to this. You're um, changing anyway. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I like the setting choice. The characters are fine. The story hooks. Emperor Norton is one of my favorite historical figures, so I'm glad that he gets a nod here because he is a very mm-hmm. changeling figure. He would have to be. Yes. There's. Yeah. They, they could set it some other city, and they'd somehow have to bring it. Yes. That's... Um, and it connects to the Immortalized trilogy, which you know I give them credit for you know, making this effort to connect the core book with a trilogy of game supplements with a trilogy of novels and represent that in the art materials and everything. And really, you know, it gives it that, that feel of, I don't know, metaplot is the wrong word. It makes the world feel lived in, I suppose, because Mm -hmm. you're, you're sort of peeking your head into this character level story, not the grand political things that are the backdrop, but the actual Hey, here's this ragtag group of heroes, just like you, you know. How, how San Francisco did, I mean, it's San Francisco 1995, not... Yeah, before my time. How, how yeah, how San Francisco did it feel still, though? It's It felt like parts of San Francisco that do still exist. There are little okay. corners of it that still feel accurate. Which is what it would really have to be anyway, like, yeah, for Changeling. It needs to be in the little corners. Absolutely. And then the story, yeah, you said it. It's fine. <laughs> it doesn't it yeah. doesn't grip me but it's fine oh the last words that was just not really about change no but that was interesting so it's so it's it's uh mark ryan hagen he you know one of the the sort of core people behind creating white wolf if you had to pick one person it would be him and he's talking about him leaving white wolf and starting some sort of digital thing that i've never heard of before I don't think it ever came to fruition. I mean, yeah, Cry Wolf Settlement, the Centennial yeah. Project. It's supposed to have all the White Wolf books on a website. Yeah, in a, in a ver- VRML, Virtual Reality, Multi something. It's interesting though because you can see the threads of other stuff that did happen. So you had like the New Bremen, you know, living setting on the White Wolf website. You had the forums. Mm-hmm. Now we have the wiki. Uh, for like content from the books so it does presage a lot of the sort of digital things 
it's it's kind of like a competitor to AutoCAD. It's um oh my goodness. It was supposed to be like a collection of 3D models, which you make the city and then play in it. Uh, I think. So it's like second life or something. Again, so 90s. Oh wait. So but it also would tie into what um when White Wolf got purchased by or merged with or whatever. Oh, CCP. It, yeah. Yeah. It's not that far from what their plan was. Yeah. Don't do that, I guess, is the answer. It won't happen. <laughs> well, and then there's this Centennium Project idea. I don't know. It vaguely reminds me of like the Trinity universe that a couple years later was developed, the sort of future technology and science-based utopian tension game. But like, what the heck is a neo-utopia? Neo-utopia. <laughs> yeah, it's a new utopia instead of that old yeah. one that we're tired of. This is this is par for the course, though, I think, for these sort of last words pages, because they do yeah. appear at the end of each core book, um, yeah. or at least the original ones. And mm-hmm. I, I find it a little bit sad because, you know, thinking about these plans that didn't happen. And I don't think I mean, I, I haven't followed Mark Reinhagen's, you know life or anything, but I imagine mm-hmm. that he's done fine for himself in the long run, even if it didn't include these things. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me wonder if you go back and read something that you wrote 25 years ago about all these plans that never happened, that's there's some kind of deep comment on glamour and banality in there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it's also interesting. It's like the first changeling book was the guy you think of as like starting white wolf, leaving white wolf. Well, he had finished the last game in the original conception of five, I suppose. Yeah. So what more was there for him to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think we've also textually proven that, you know, Changeling is part of the original five and that were five. Yeah. It may have still been tentative at the first yes. stages. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it actually, I mean, I don't think he's saying he's leaving White Wolf here. I think it's putting down the world of darkness. Yeah, and he's leaving, he's also moving to San Francisco. Right. So let's... To join the coders. Yep. Yeah, that says a lot about glamour and banality and changeling in the world of darkness. And... Yeah. But he also says, I was supposed to go to Hollywood and become some sort of writer-producer dude, but I'm going to go do this instead. So I wonder what happened. I, I remember he did come back briefly around the 20th anniversary vampire stuff. But Yeah, he just he pops up once in a while. And mm-hmm. That's cool. Yep. So yeah, then next... Yeah, like we said, the art realm and bunk cards. Ugh. No nightmare you, cards. You read that beautiful last word section, because it is beautiful, and then you turn the page and you get arts realms and bunks. Yep. I'm just like, no, put the cards down. Yeah. Character sheet's not so bad. Index, I didn't check if the index is useful. It is. I'll vote for it. Yep. And then like... Oh, then we get ads. There's like... And it's like an ad for a book I read, a Michael Moorcock book I yeah. read. Back when White Wolf did fiction that wasn't World of Darkness related. Yes, but I remember I like I did this before I knew I read it before I knew what the World of Darkness was. Yep, I didn't realize it. Um, or the Lankmar books by Fritz Lieber. And then Rage, the Werewolf Apocalypse trading card game, tying in again just how big trading card games were back then. Yep. And then Vampire, eh. available everywhere. And it doesn't even say which edition or anything. It's just why are they advertising <laughs> Vampire in the Changeling book? Well, you know, they had to put something on the last page. Yes. So, what did you think of this? Any any final thoughts for this journey? Well, it's weird. Chronos journey. It's weird because it's not really a walk down memory lane for me because, I mean, I think I got this book 
like long after Changeling had ended. Maybe not long after, but certainly after mm-hmm. Time of Judgment and the lines folded and everything. So it was never my my Ur text for the game. Mm-hmm. But it's nice to sort of, you know, go back and see the roots of the of the original text that I loved so much and to see how those ideas it's a book where you can tell the dreams of its creators are really worked into its fabric. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely a book that sort of practices what it preaches. You know, I think yes. they really just let themselves loose. And yeah, maybe some clunky systems came out of it and maybe there were contradictions and it didn't always hold together. But that for Changeling more than any other game, maybe that's besides the point. And, and I think for a first edition White Wolf game in 1995, they don't even really need all those caveats. It's like not bad, actually. It's, it's, it's a, like the the mechanics are where the biggest issues are, but that's not surprising. And like the setting stuff's really good. Like all the other stuff's really good. Yeah. I think ambitious, mm-hmm. you know. And they change things, sure. But it's leaps and bounds better than Vampire First Edition. I could say that. Yeah. In terms of how it holds together, and it's drip has just as much dripping of theme and mood and stuff, if not more. It drips like a saturated sunrise. Job well done, team. Um, well done, Mark Reinhagen, Sam Chuck, Ian Lemke, and Joshua Gabriel Timbrook. We're looking in, we're going to be having a few different ideas. It's not just going to be book reviews, but uh, we are going to be looking into more, going through the more of the Changeling books mm-hmm. as we're going through, and I'll keep you updated on uh, what else to expect. And I believe next up is the Storyteller Screen slash Book of Storyteller Secrets what fun it will be i'd like to do a shout out on the uh, front matter page with the credits in the lower left it does say printed in canada so nice. there you go yes we've a lot of gaming books have been printed in canada over the years it's uh, it's been changing the podcast i'm puka i'm josh hopefully it won't fall to the mists before the next book comes next podcast comes out try not to eat some glamour <laughs> <laughs>